All right, it was a great success. Well, today we're going to talk about, as Kimberly has already led us into, the Easter story. Now, most likely you heard a children's version of it there with Kimberly, and I know you've probably heard it before, maybe even dozens of times, you've heard the Easter story. In short, Jesus' death on the cross is not the end. He is risen. We mentioned last week of how this has great significance and of how sometimes the world today just overlooks the fact of Good Friday, the entire Holy Week, or even of today of Easter. The world just overlooks it and just pretends it goes on like it's any other day. So last week we took an opportunity on Palm Sunday to begin rightfully with the triumphal injury and talked about the account pertaining to Jesus as he rides in the colt, the foal of a donkey. But during this entire week, let's reflect, remember, that during this particular week, Holy Week, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Even of his betrayer, he still washed the feet of the men, of the man who would ultimately betray him. Throughout the week, of course, he also communes with his disciples, which would be the Last Supper. Again, he's kissed by his betrayer, by Judas. He was captured at Gethsemane. He was taken later to be flogged and beaten. Ultimately, to Pilate, who finds nothing wrong with Jesus, nothing to condemn him. But yet Pilate washes his hands from the entire proceedings, cowardly allows the crucifixion. Jesus is forced to wear a crown of thorns. He is nailed to the cross along with two criminals. He's mocked by one of the criminals, but yet the other recognizes him being the Savior. And eventually then Jesus breathes his last, and he dies on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. There's more to the story. We know it all culminates with the fact that he, Jesus, is removed from the tomb, I mean, removed from the cross, he's prepared for burial, and then placed in the tomb. Again, not the end of the story. We know the story. We know it ends with the fact that three days later when the women revisit the tomb, as Kimberly has led the children to understand, when Mary went to the tomb with other women, they found a stone rolled away, Jesus not laying in the tomb, and discovered the fact that he had risen. Altogether, the entire Easter story provides each and every one of us with hope and promises. That's what we know about the Easter story. But also, I want to bring to your attention today that the Easter story has emptiness. It has emptiness within the storyline. Now, we don't often think about the fact that there's emptiness in the storyline of Easter. But I want you to think about this morning, it's not empty promises, as we might even begin to think about, as the title of the message even begins to tell us that it's Easter empty promises, empty Easter promises. But I want to share with you that the emptiness that we find within the text today, three forms of emptiness, leads to promises that we have from Easter. So what are these promises marked by the form of emptiness? We'll discover them today and we'll elaborate. We're going to read a portion of the story that we're so familiar with and highlight in three forms of emptiness that ultimately leads to great promises from our Lord. So stand with me this morning if you're able to do so as we go to John we're going to start in the 19th chapter, and then we'll transition to chapter 20. It's a little bit more lengthy in reading than we typically have on a Sunday morning, but let's bear together and get through a portion of the wonderful story of 
Easter and find these empty things that's going to be giving us the promises from Easter. So we start in John chapter 19 and verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. So verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a, a, a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. But then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. Father, Lord, we thank you today, Lord, for the reading of a wonderful story that gives us forms of emptiness but many wonderful promises from that. So, Lord, today I ask that we would begin to really consider the text, find these forms of emptiness, lead us now in understanding this text, maybe even deeper than we have before, and to also find how this emptiness, the emptiness that occurred upon Easter, led to wonderful, great promises from you, the promises we can still enjoy today. So lead and guide and direct us here today, Lord. Anoint this time we're together. Allow your spirit to flow here today. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, I read a story last week about two boys. In fact, they're brothers. I want to recount some of that story for you. I may not get it verbatim as I read it, but that's not the, the most important thing. The most important thing is we understand who the characters are in the story I'm about to tell you about these two boys. Yes, they're brothers. So there was an older brother, wise, mature. I mean, he's marvelously handsome. Let's call him Kurt. And there's a younger brother, not so marvelous, not so handsome. I mean, the guy can barely function through life. Let's call him Ken. Okay? So there's Kurt and there's Ken. Again, Kurt the older, Ken the younger of the two brothers. And they're sitting for down for breakfast one particular morning. And their mother's made them some eggs. So they're enjoying their scrambled eggs for breakfast. And Kurt looks over at Ken. I mean, again, remember, he's wise, he's mature beyond all understanding. He looks over at Ken. He says, Ken, I will give you, I promise to give you $20 if I can break three eggs on your head. Well, Ken, you know, he's a little bit slow. So he thinks about it a little bit. And he says, yes, I'll take the $20. Go ahead and break those three eggs on my head. So Kurt takes the first egg. Breaks it on his head. Ken looks up and just kind of gives that little grin. And Kurt is giggling right now a lot because it's fun. It's fun to break an egg on somebody's head. Try it later at home or not. So then he takes the second egg. Ken's prepared himself. I mean, he's getting ten steps because he knows it's coming. That person's already there. He's got yolk running down his face and everything. He takes the second egg, smashes the top of his head again. So he, Kurt's giggling again. I mean, he's enjoying this. I mean, who doesn't like breaking eggs on a brother's head, right? So then Ken realizes that's only two to three. So he tenses up for that last one. Kurt goes back over to the table and sits down. Ken says, what are you doing? You promised to give me $20 to break three eggs. Kurt says, yeah, that's for three eggs. I'm enjoying two. It reveals for us that there are empty promises in every aspect of life. They abound in life. They abound in the world which we're living in. But there's not empty promises with Easter. Yeah, though even we're going to look and find three forms of emptiness related to the Easter story, it is not indicative of any kind of empty promises. Because all the promises of the emptiness we find upon Easter has been fulfilled. We can enjoy these promises even of today. So what are these emptiness, these forms of empty that occur upon the Easter story? Well, here they are. Three forms of emptiness that ultimately leads to promises from our Lord. There is an empty cross. There is empty clothes. And of course, there is an empty cave or tomb. Let's expand upon each of them this morning. Again, the first is an empty cross. I'm going to ask you something. And try to work with me and try to think about yourself now being at the cross. Now, of course, we know the cross is empty. We know it is, it is not having Jesus on it. We just learned from verses 38 and 39 in our story that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have cooperated together and removed Jesus' body from the cross. But yet, close your eyes and begin to imagine you are at the cross. When you're at the cross... And you begin to look around. What do you see? 
If you're there, most likely what you see is relics of our Lord's death. Like a braided thorny crown with scarlet tips now where it's pierced his, his head. You look around, you find three iron nails on the ground now dirty, but yet covered with blood. You look up, you may find the empty cross, but a battered sign above the cross that reads in English, King of the Jews. And simply you look and you find, yes, the cross is empty. There's no one on the cross any longer. But you can't help but noticing the stained blood on the cross. The stained blood on the cross of God. You know, we don't tend to think about the stained blood on the cross being God. I mean, it's almost even bizarre to think about that. I mean, have you ever truly thought about the blood-stained cross and thought that that blood that's on that cross that we can symbolize and see and even picture in our mind, that it is not the blood of man, but the blood of God? I mean, we don't rationalize that in our mind because we think about being man's blood. And it, and it is man's blood, but it's no ordinary man upon that cross. Because he was man, but he was also fully man, but fully God. And that blood was shed for all of us of our sins. And we need to take that into consideration of all the things pertaining to Easter. That the blood on the cross from Jesus, God incarnate, God's blood, it was all then because of our sin that we have in our lives. And many people miss the point that the blood was because of us, of our sin. And typically people state that the blood upon the cross that we can picture in our mind and maybe see pictures of, I mean, God's blood, as I'm telling you today, they think it was because of Judas. I mean, he was the one who betrayed Jesus, right? 30 pieces of silver. He received for betraying our Lord with a kiss? It's because of Judas. Or if not Judas, they say, well, the blood on the cross is because of Pilate, the coward, who could have stopped the proceedings, but washed his hands from the law and allowed it to continue. Or if it wasn't maybe Judas or Pilate, sometimes they think the blood on the cross, those stained limbs, those that cross that blood is there, God's blood, was because of the chief priests, the Pharisees, who instigated all these trumped up charges of our Lord. Or perhaps it was because of the crowd who were present that yelled, crucify, crucify, crucify. But the fact is, the blood on the empty cross is because of our sin. And it then provided the promise of reconciliation to God our Father. It provided the promise of forgiveness for our sin. It was the promise that our sin is paid in full. The debt has been paid. Think back. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke upon the cross as death was near? I mean, really is imminent. Do you remember the words? It's in Verse 30, we started in verse 31 today, but in verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
the words that Jesus said is, it is finished. It is finished as in there's no more to be done. There's nothing further Jesus could do, and there's nothing that we can do. So after six agonizing hours on that cross, recognize that Jesus paid it all. Our debt has been paid. When he uttered, it is finished, he wiped away all the sin debt that we could ever accumulate in any of our lives. It's wiped away. Our debt has been paid. Our debt has been paid by the ultimate sacrifice. And that is because the cross is empty. And because the cross is empty, we have the promise of forgiveness. There's the promise. Yes, it's emptiness of the cross. But the promise is we have the promise of forgiveness for our sin. But that's not the only emptiness, as we had alluded to, that comes with the promise. Other than empty cross, we mentioned we have empty clothes. As noted earlier in verses 38 and 39, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus teamed together. They approached Pilate to remove Jesus' body from the cross. But did you know, we know that, but did you know this? That many scholars are quick to point out, because we often forget, we can read over in the text, that both of these men were Pharisees. And we know for certain, we remember perhaps that Nicodemus was a prestigious Pharisee. It tells us in John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he met Jesus by night. We heard that before maybe of Nicodemus, but did you know that Joseph of Arimathea was also one of the council? A prestigious, respected member? Mark reports that in his recollection of that particular event of the Resurrection Sunday. He says, Joseph Arimathea, in Mark 15, 43, a well-respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. But notice how it tells us that both men were members of the council. Both of them were Pharisees. So these Pharisees then, who were Pharisees known to stand in great opposition to Jesus, know how the courageous then received permission to remove Jesus from the cross. That's what the verses tell us. As we dig deeper, we find that, yes. But look further. Not only did they remove the body, but these two Pharisees, who typically stood in opposition to Jesus, now they took the body, they removed from the cross, and they prepared it for burial. In verse 39, you see, and Nicodemus brought spices. It's pronounced myrrh and aloes in particular. In verse 40, they, maybe together, they bound or wrapped the body in linen cloths, which is part of the burial custom. And as all that is going on, though, recognize that that's all indicative for everybody who was watching, particularly maybe the disciples and the ladies and women marrying them. It's all indicative that for them, that their friend, Jesus, their friend, their mentor, their Lord, they had surely died, and he was gone. The body is completely lifeless. And how has been prepared properly for burial? I can only imagine what maybe they were thinking as they seen all the proceedings. As they see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea removed the body, prepared for burial, and seen all that 
happened firsthand. I can only imagine what they must have been experiencing. They've been with Jesus for over three years. So what were they thinking? What were they? I mean, I can only imagine a portion of what they were thinking. Scott Brails kind of offers the perspective for us on the one maybe Jesus whom loved John. He says, for John, who witnessed all this firsthand, the arrival of the burial clothes represented the departure of hope. They placed all their hope in Jesus. He said these linens were a tangible reminder that his faith and future were wrapped up in cloth and sealed behind a rock. I mean, that's an interesting comment when you really begin to think deeper about what Brails has told us. So maybe John is contemplating what maybe John is thinking. But it points also to the fact that hope, everybody looks to Jesus with hope. We've had that message before. And hope was introduced to the world. We know on swaddling clothes. Swaddling cloths wraps that image of hope of our Lord. And now we find, as the disciples looking upon the occasion, that hope was now lost, wrapped in linen burial cloths. Isn't that interesting? He came into the world with hope wrapped in swaddling cloths, and now he's leaving, or they think the hope is departed by these cloths of burial linen. But yet, while John and the disciples don't know it, hope was not lost. Hope was not lost in the burial clothing, in the burial linen. John admits that he and the disciples didn't understand in verse 9 of chapter 20. But at this particular moment, it isn't hard to see that John the ten remaining disciples and all the women, they must have been crushed in their spirit. All their hopes and dreams fully rested in no one but one man who was man but God. They believed that he was God in flesh. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. And when they see him gone, when they see he died, their spirit had to be crushed. Imagine they also are there at the foot of the cross, recognizing that it's littered with blood. There's nails lying on the ground. Maybe pieces of that thorn cross, a crown that he was forced to wear. And maybe even torn linen laying about. They see all this. They certainly then, as they see all this happening, as they put all their hope in Jesus, now they're discouraged. Maybe disillusioned. And maybe even now full of doubt. As you think about that as it's happening to that men and women, the disciples, people Jesus was with and who he loved, as that was happening to them, maybe thinking, wait a minute. I can relate to that feeling. I can relate to the feeling of discouragement, of being disillusioned. Heaven worry, I'm, I'm worried, I'm fearful. I have little faith, if any faith at all. I mean, it must have been what they were going through, and I can relate to that. I mean, think about it. We've all been there. Even in the four months we've had, I'm not quite four full months, but in three and a half months, we've had a lot to happen already. Or the last year or two, a lot has transplaced all these years and all we've been going through for, for quite a while. I mean, yes, there's COVID. And now we talk about a return to COVID, the BA2 thing going around. Or we have cancer, or the death of cancer, or we have financial struggles. I mean, it's been real for many different people here today or listening later. We feel it. We know it. 
And when life gets hard, our hopes get shattered. And our faith can suffer a devastating blow. So much so, honestly, we can actually begin to wonder where God is when things begin to happen. And if he's really even listening or even cares at all. That's how we can feel when life happens to us. So when disciples and women put all their hope, all their faith in Jesus, and now he's gone, they got him wrapped in these burial linens, the same kind of things must have been going through their minds for John and disciples. But we can take that and we can learn from John and from the others because we can learn that they decided not to run, they said not to hide, not to fear, not to lose hope, but rather to hang in there. They decided to just hang in there for a moment, hang in there, let us exercise trust and faith, and let us believe. Because interesting, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, interesting, the text concerning the death of Jesus as we know it and maybe have heard it before and understand it, we don't find anything recorded about what happened on the Saturday between the death on the cross and the resurrection Sunday. There's nothing told us about what they're doing or happening on that Saturday day between. But what we can see then to come back to the story is that when Sunday came, well, they're still lingering about. They're still around. They're still present in some form or fashion. Maybe trusting, maybe believing, maybe hoping, maybe wanting to be faithful. And because they didn't run, because they didn't abandon, because they didn't give up, ever maybe still hanging around, they were still there to see the miracle that happened in on Sunday. So then Sunday came, the third day, the women, we know the story, we read it earlier, the women come back to the tomb. They come back, but the stone has been removed from the entrance. Mary, as we see in the text in John chapter 20, Mary runs to Peter and to John to tell them that someone has taken the body of our Lord. So Peter and John hurriedly rush to see for themselves. Of course, John outruns Peter like I would with Ken. And it seems stunned as he arrives. So when John outruns Peter. What did he see when he got there? Verse 5 tells us, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. But rather interesting, he didn't go in. But then Ken, I mean, slash Peter, he catches up. And when he catches up, what did Peter see? Verse 6 and 7 tell us. Simon Peter came in. He went into the tomb. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there in the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So you see all this. You see all this. I mean, they're having all these different thoughts going through their mind. I mean, they're trying to exercise faith. They're not trying to have any doubt. There may be a little doubt there. They're trying to keep their faith, keep their trust. They're trying to process what all this means. But honestly, they tell us in verse 8 that the shock is there, but somehow John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, begins to reason. He begins to reason that someone, that someone had taken the body. Why, weren't, why were the clothes still here? Wouldn't the clothes, the burial linens, be accompanying the body if someone had taken the body? But John begins to reason 
And he knows when there's really only one answer, that Jesus had risen. He defeated death, that Jesus was alive. He began to reason that in his mind. It may be understood. You say, okay, that's the story, but what does all that mean? How does that relate then to emptiness? How does it relate to empty clothes? Well, here's the answer. He reveals that on the first Easter morning, that God took burial clothing, these linens, a tangible reminder of Jesus' death, a symbol of tragedy, and made it in a symbol of hope, a birthplace of faith. A pile of empty clothes restored John's faith. If it was ever in doubt, it now restored the faith that he's seen the clothes lying there. Begin to reason, surely if someone taking a body, they'd taken the clothes. For now the empty clothes was proof that Jesus had indeed risen. And we can relate to that. Beginning to place it into our lives and see that the next time your faith, it will happen. The next time your faith is shaken, remember the empty clothes lying at the tomb and let, you, let it restore your faith that anything is possible with God. God still has the power to perform miracles. Amen? God still can. God still does. He may not answer everything according to what we want. But God still has the power to perform miracles. All we have to do is trust and believe and have faith. So the Easter story then has what emptiness, an empty cross. It has empty clothes. And we said, yes, one more thing, an empty cave, by the way. So with the realization of the empty tomb or the cave, we noted in verse 10 where we stop surprisingly, what happened? The disciples return home. But let us continue the story, go back to John chapter 20, because after the disciples return home, Mary stays at the tomb and she begins to weep. Chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Sounds rather familiar of what happened to Peter and John. Matthew's recollection of Resurrection Sunday states that Mary was visibly shaken, so the angel told her not to be afraid in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 5 and 6, the angel said to the woman, to, well, he says women, because there's more than one. He said, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. So the combination of the gospel reveals for us that, rather interestingly, Mary needed to also see for herself. Peter and John entered the tomb. They entered the cave. Yeah, Peter did first, John did eventually, and they deserved his emptiness. And eventually, John began to reason, perhaps sharing with his disciples, that no one had taken the body, that Jesus had truly risen. But notice how Mary remained at the tomb. She began to weep. Maybe also herself needing some proof. So with the encouragement of the angel, she looks now in for herself and sees. 
that the tomb is empty. It is not any different than it was previously with Peter and John. The tomb, the cave, is empty. And the fact is it's still empty today. The tomb is still empty today. Now what's that mean? That the tomb is still empty? That the disciples witnessed it for themselves and that Mary was weeping and now saw for herself? What's all that mean? It means this. That the emptiness of the tomb where Jesus was placed after his death is a symbol of life that outlasts the grave, of life everlasting. In other words, the empty cave or the empty tomb promises forever. It's empty, it promises forever. It promises forever. Say it with me. It promises what? Forever. And when you begin to think about it, we truly can't grasp what that word forever means. Because in our world, nothing lasts forever. Cars, trucks, boats, homes, they're all perishable ultimately. Even things like relationships or championships that we seem to enjoy for a little while, or even money, career, they're all eventually made in because nothing seems to last forever. Solomon even said those words. It says nothing lasts forever. But yet Jesus now promises. He's making a promise. The concept of forever is true, is everlasting, is eternal life. That Jesus gives us with the fact that the tomb is empty. Everlasting, eternal life is mentioned repeatedly through the Bible. Consider John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not die, but have what? Everlasting life. There's one. Or John 4.14. Which says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And maybe short and sweet, John 6.47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. We can't truly grasp what it means of forever. But Jesus promises we can have forever. Those people, they live through life really wanting just a long and happy life. For all their days, be long and happy. But if anything we've learned, particularly this year, that's out of our control. But Jesus offers forever. Eternity. Everlasting. Because it's out of our control, doesn't it make sense to turn to the one Jesus, God's only son, doesn't it make sense to turn to him who can guarantee life everlasting? The empty tomb, the empty cave is symbolic and then serves as a reminder that Christ rose from the grave never to die again. And likewise, the same applies for you and for me, that we can live forever. We can live forever by simply accepting Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. The empty tomb promises forever, eternity everlasting. So to recap, the empty cross promises forgiveness of our sin. The empty clothes encourages us to be faithful and to believe and to have trust. And again, the empty cave then promises forever to those who place their faith in the one who conquered death. 
The fun little story in the beginning of me and my brother Ken tells us that no one can be counted on in life to keep a promise. But our God does and keep all of his promises. No empty promises exist with God. Empty promises abound in the world today. Life is full of empty promises. So often we're given a promise of something that just never happens and is almost too good to even be true. Marketing companies have made a mockery of promises. Always offering something to you if you purchase their product that never happens. Enticing you to buy the car, perfume, clothing that make you happy, rich, or famous if you simply purchase their product. But it never really seems to happen. Broken promises. They're empty. They're trying to sell a product. But it's marketing companies. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we also become guilty of making empty, broken promises? I mean, honestly, admittedly, I have with my children. I've told them before that we move. We've been to four different states. And I've told them we move from one to the other. It may make you happier. I promise you'll enjoy this school better. You'll make new friends. I mean, we'll get in a swimming pool. We'll do all these wonderful things that make you happier. And, and you'll just enjoy this. I promise you it will happen. I even promised them one time, living in Texas, that would add on a room to the house and have a TV cinema room. And it never happened. There's another empty, broken promise. So notice how many empty promises abound in the world. And we become guilty of it ourselves. Even some televangelists will make promise to you that will go unfulfilled. They'll say, send me your money and you'll have that pain removed. You'll be cured from your illness. But when you send them the money, nothing seems to change. Another empty, broken promise. Simply because they cannot and do not control such a promise. But who can fulfill every promise? God. The Bible records over 7,000 promises that God made to his people, and he fulfilled every one of them. We can make promises to people and we brave them constantly. We can make a promise to our friends, to our boss, to our loved ones, to our neighbor, and we'll break every promise, not fulfilling many of them. But not God. God is noticeably different. He fulfills every promise. Yes, on Easter morning, we found three forms of emptiness, but not leading to empty promises. God fulfills his promises. And today we find the emptiness leads to our promises that we can receive right here, right now. That the empty cross promises forgiveness for our sin. That the empty clothes promises faith for those who endure. And the empty cave then promises forever to those who simply put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father. Lord, this message today speaks to us. Maybe we hadn't thought about the fact that there are emptiness. There are some emptiness, Lord, associated with Easter. But now we see these different forms of emptiness as we've now gathered. Leads us to a promise. So Lord, let us today, as we recognize these different forms of emptiness, begin to, well, if nothing else, Lord, just begin to say thank you. 
It may seem weird or maybe it's sadistic somehow, Lord, that we think, well, thank you for the death of someone. But yes, Lord, we can thank you because these things that we find with the Easter story truly does give us hope because these promises have been fulfilled. Lord, today we come to celebrate the fact that you conquered death. Lord, let us today just reflect upon the celebration that Mary and Peter and John and the disciples had upon this day when they fully realized the truth. Let us also today, Lord, begin to think about that price you paid for us to be reconciled to the Father, to have our sins to be forgiven. Lord, we think about that. We're certainly grateful. We're certainly thankful, Lord. But let us never then take it for granted of how you took our place. It was our sin. You took our place on the cross, Lord. Let us not ever take it for granted. And let's begin today, if never before, truly appreciate the sacrifice that you made. Thank you today, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.